wonderful weather. We thank you for the wonder of your creation. We thank you, Lord, for being our God and for giving us the Bible that can transform our lives. And I pray, Lord, that everyone in here has felt its power, has known its power to transform their lives. We thank you, Lord, for being a living Lord who cares about us. We thank you that you stand in the midst of your churches and you care about your church, that you love your church, church, that you chasten your church because whom you loveth, you chasteneth. We thank you for what we're going to be looking at as we look at these seven letters to the seven churches and what you have to say by way of uh, commendation and by way of um, condemnation. And I pray, Father, that our hearts will be open to hear what you have to say to us about our local churches and to us about individual Christians in our walk with you. Lord, help us to be receptive. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will do his work in each and every heart and that these letters will truly change our lives. I know how they changed my own life, and I pray that it will change my life again so that I can be more effective for you. Father, be with us now as we begin our introductory lesson on these seven vital churches. Help us to truly focus on what you have for us this morning and to put away all the busyness from our lives as we go into the holiday seasons. Help us to truly concentrate on Jesus Christ and what he has to say to the church. For we pray in his name. Amen. In this lesson, as you heard me just pray, we are going to be introducing our study of the seven letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches, which were already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11. Now, we'll not actually get into our exposition of those letters, which begins, of course, in chapter 2, verse 1, with the letter to the church of Ephesus, but we are going to discuss a great deal of important preliminary information, which will prepare us and I hope will excite us for our look at these two chapters and at the seven letters. With this lesson, we also begin not only the second chapter, but we begin the second major section of our general outline, which is called the possession of Christ. We looked at the person of Christ. Now we're going to start the possession of Christ. In Revelation 1.19, which you probably all have marked in your Bible already, the Lord told John to write the things which are. And since he was living... In the time of history known as the church age, and since you and I are still living within this time frame, we are still living in the church age, then chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are. And this for us then is going to be the most critical section of Revelation. This will be the most critical section for you and I that we will look at in the entire book because this is where we are. This is where we are in time. The events that we'll be looking at past chapter 3 are all yet future. And although we need to know about them, which is why we're studying the book of Revelation, we need to know about them in order to understand God's complete program for human history. And we need to know about them in order to be able to warn others ahead of time about what is happening and about the judgment to come. We need to know about them in order to have a greater appreciation for our Lord and also for a number of other reasons. Yet they do not directly apply to where we are right now in time, although I do believe that we are getting very close to the time when they will occur. However, in chapters 2 and 3, we are met directly head-on with where we are in time. Not only with where we are in our individual local churches, but where we are in our individual lives with the Lord Jesus. And I have said all this in order to tell you that we are definitely going to develop these two chapters to their fullest. 
I don't know how long we will be in them, but we will be in them for quite some time because we want to learn all that we can from them because they are very, very rich. They are very powerful. They are loaded. And I do have to warn you, as I have in the past, they are also very convicting. They are chapters which literally can turn our lives around, as they did with my own. It was a study of the seven churches of Revelation which literally turned my life around. It was a study of these two chapters which made me submit my life totally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and want to be a living sacrifice to him. It was while studying these two chapters at my kitchen table that I was convinced without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ wrote this book, that God is the author of the Bible. And I said, I want to live for him. And I remember, I've told you this in my testimony, how I would sit there and kiss this book, the Bible, because I had that hope and that knowledge that I had something concrete to live my life on and to live eternity on. So they can change your lives, and I hope that they will. And we may not always like what we hear. As I said, they can be very, very convicting. In fact, the things that we will be discussing, I can guarantee you, are probably going to step on some toes. Because they're going, we're going to hear the Lord Jesus Christ talk about some things probably that we hold very dearly to, such as maybe some things going on in denominations or our local churches, some traditional things, some ritualistic things that we hold on to but really that aren't very biblical, or in some cases aren't biblical at all. But they are condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ, some of these things. And, uh, and he is very indignant. Remember the flame of fire that's shooting out from his eyes? He's very indignant about some of the things going on in his church. And so we're going to have our toes stepped on. Actually, if you get out of here without having your toes stepped on, there's, you're, you're probably a perfect Christian ready to go home to be with the Lord. Because every one of us, I guarantee, are going to have our toes stepped on. Starting with the church of Ephesus, with those who've lost their first love. That's convicting. I know I don't have the love and the zeal I had when I was a first newborn Christian. That's convicting. Well, before the book of Revelation presents for us any judgment, any message of judgment on the unbelieving, ungodly world... It's biblical that the author, the Lord himself, would first call his church to repentance. You see, it says in 2 Peter 4, 17, that judgment must begin where? At the house of the Lord, the house of God. If our local churches are not properly functioning as Christ's truth and as Christ's light and his righteousness, then they cannot influence the world around them. They cannot bring the light into the darkness with the message of the gospel, the saving message of the gospel, if they are not effective, if they are full of sin. So judgment must begin at the house of God. Now, of course, only the Lord Jesus himself can fully and accurately inspect each church as well as each individual Christian and know their true inner condition because only he can see the deepest inner workings of a church and of a Christian as easily as he can see what's going on externally. In other words, he can see the heart just as easily as he can see what the hands and feet are doing. To us, a church may look rich. And, you know, sometimes we judge a church by, by the externals. You know, oh, it's a big church. It's got a big campus. Uh, 
it looks so rich, the pews are velvet or leather or whatever, you know, so something to us might look very rich, but in God's sight, it might be very poor. He tells us about this with the church of Laodicea. And a church which to us may look very poor, it may be just a little shabby little, you know, one building. Maybe that's the entire campus of that church is that one little building. And we might say, well, that's a poor church, you know, maybe the pastor there isn't very, he's not, must not be very good. That's our external judgment, which is wrong. It may be the richest church of all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in Revelation 2.9. The biggest and the fanciest buildings and the largest congregations don't necessarily gain the Lord's approval. There is a huge monster church up in Illinois. I won't give you the name of the town, but it's up in Illinois where I'm from. Monster church. I think they've gone to five services. But that church, in God's sight, is not rich. I know about doctrinal compromises in that church that are big time. So we can't look at the outside and make the judgment. Only God can make the judgment. Only Christ Some of the most modest little structures and some of those secret, you know, underground church, uh, home churches that are going on in China and other places, they might belong, they might be the most spiritually alive, on fire churches to God. Those are the churches he loves. Whereas the big, beautiful, you know, I'm not saying this is always the case, but oftentimes it is. And only God, only Christ can really make the judgment. He is the head of the church and only he can rightfully and fully examine the heart of a church as well as the heart of a Christian. And because these seven letters are his assessment of both churches and individuals who call themselves Christians, we need to consider them in detail. And we need to consider them with open, willing hearts in order to receive what the Spirit has to say to us. Remember what the promised blessing for this book is in 1 verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. It's to those who not only read and hear the message of the book of Revelation, but to those who keep the things that are written therein. And what did we say the word keep means? Those who obey, those who internalize the things that are written in in them. And particularly, this is true with chapters 2 and 3, because as I said, this is where we are. The Lord is speaking to his churches. He is speaking to his church universal. He is speaking to individual Christians. And so we need to really internalize what he is saying to us in these two chapters. Now, before we begin this lesson by looking at the outline we're going to follow, I want to read a passage of scripture to you that it comes from Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul wrote this, if you want to turn there, but otherwise you can listen. 5 verses 23 to 27 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the what? The word, by the word. That's how he cleanses the church is by his word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Let's remember, please, okay, as we look at the Lord's seven letters to his church, that his purpose in writing these letters is that he might sanctify and cleanse his church with the washing of water by the word. And the word, of course, is his word. 
So let's remember that his purpose is not to condemn. His purpose is to correct so that his church, which he loved so much that he gave himself for it, he died for it, his purpose is so that the church might be holy and without blemish. He loves his church. He loves it supremely. And these letters, we could really say, are his love letters from himself to his beloved bride. Everything he says in these two chapters, he says out of a love, out of a heart of love, and out of a pure motive of deepest concern for his church. He wants to cleanse it. He wants his church to be perfect when it is presented to him as his beloved bride. Remember where Christ was standing when John saw him in chapter 1? He was standing in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which means he was standing in the midst of the church, because seven represents the church universal. Well, why is he there? Why is he in the midst? Well, because where two or three are gathered in his name, there is he in, what, the midst of them. He is there because he is ministering to his church. He is trimming the lamps. He's filling them with oil. He's comforting them. He's leading them. He's convicting them. And yes, he is even chastening them. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he is doing all of this in order to build and to sanctify and to cleanse and to chasten so that his bride may be presented to him glorified and perfect, not having spot or wrinkle, according to Ephesians 5.27. Now, I don't know about you, although I think I do, (laughs) being women, but I don't like to look in a mirror and find any spots and wrinkles on my face or my body, for that matter. I don't like it, but I find them. Well, even more than I dislike these imperfections on my external person, should I dislike them on my internal person. We should hate spots and wrinkles on our hearts. Just as much more, really, than we hate them on our face. And we should also hate spots and wrinkles when it comes to our collective internal bodies. What do I mean by that? I mean our local churches. Yes, our local congregations. The Lord Jesus Christ has the ultimate beauty cream. I came up with this. I thought it was so great. The ultimate beauty cream. His message in these seven letters is his beauty cream formula because he tells us how, if we are willing to listen to his advice, how we might wash ourselves with his word and come out without blemish, without any spots and wrinkles. And I want that kind of advice. Even if it steps on my toes, I want it, and I really do believe that you do too. So let's listen to him. Let's make a little covenant with one another and with the Lord, that we will listen with open hearts and with open ears and do our best to be willing to lay aside tradition and heritage and rituals and denominational barriers wherever it may be necessary and see what Christ is truly looking for in a beautiful Christian and in a beautiful church. Okay? Can we make that promise? Will you make a promise not to get mad at me? Because I'm only trying to teach you what the Lord is saying. Okay? And I'm going to be praying a lot about it. It's not going to be easy for me, some of the things I have to say. But I'm trying to be true and honest to the word. And to what history has shown us as well.
Now, our outline for this study will consist of three main divisions. In part one, we're going to consider the perspectives of the seven churches, and there are four perspectives. We won't get through all four this morning. In part two, which we'll look at in two weeks, we'll look at the problem of the seven churches, and then in part three, we're going to cover the purpose of the seven churches. So we're going to begin with the perspectives of the seven churches. We're not actually in the Word, so I'm not even going to read anything to you today from Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you might want to just flip there just to have it open, feel like we are in the Word. We're going to be talking about the Word, but not looking at it expositionally. The seven churches were not just chosen by Christ at random. They are representative in several ways. Actually, as I told you, they are representative in four ways. So we are going to study them from four different perspectives, and all four, I believe, are valid. And I'll tell you why. The information given in each letter describes the local historical conditions of each real church of John's day. You know, there was a real local first century church in Ephesus, for example. While, at the same time, the admonitions and the warnings of the Lord serve as guidelines for churches down through the centuries of the church age. Okay, so it wasn't just for those seven literal churches. It's for all churches throughout the church age. The problems and the situations in each letter illustrate what can take place in any church or in any individual Christian in any time period throughout the church age, and even in some cases on into the tribulation. Now, his examination of the churches, we will see, is not just confined to congregations. The individual is also very much included. Local churches are made up of who? People, exactly. They are made up of individual people. And so each person is also closely examined by the Savior. And then there is an amazing prophetic element to these seven churches because they beautifully, amazingly, incredibly provide for us a panoramic picture of the entire church age from John's day all the way until the rapture of the church and actually even on into the tribulation period because the apostate church goes on into the tribulation. So all in all, we're going to consider them from these four perspectives. First of all, as real churches of the first century, as representative churches throughout the church age, as respective churches of church history, that's, you know, seeing seven stages of church history from the rapture to, from Pentecost to the rapture, and then finally as representative Christians throughout the church age. So those will be the four perspectives we'll look at. So let's talk, first of all, about the real churches of the first century. The seven churches, which are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, or Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You can see them up there, I hope, yes. They are recognized by everyone to have been real local churches which existed in the first century of the Christian era. These were seven literal, real, first century churches. And they were all located, as we've talked about before, on the western side of the Roman province of Asia, 
which was known then as Asia Minor. It's not the same Asia we think of today over there in China and India. It was Asia Minor, and today this area is known as Turkey. Now, these churches are mentioned in the order which they would have been visited by a postman from Patmos. I should have had a pen. Here's my pen. Okay, Patmos is this little island right there. If John sent the letters via a postman, and he must have had somebody, obviously, who took these letters, this is how the postman would have gone. He would have gone from Patmos to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So they're right in the order that the man would have traveled delivering each letter. They're arranged in what we could call sort of a circular pattern going from Ephesus, which was probably the mother church of the area, over to Laodicea. Now, as we consider each of the seven local literal churches in chapters 2 and 3, we will study the individual church as it existed in that first century. We'll take a look at its setting in the city in which it existed. We'll talk about how the church was begun, if we know. We'll talk about how it grew. We'll talk about maybe who was the pastor of that church, if we know. We'll talk about who we might suspect attended that church. And then, of course, we'll talk about what Christ had to say to that local congregation in way of encouragement and in way, of course, also of correction. Now, it will be interesting to see that more often than not, the local church began to partake of the nature and the character of the city, which was not good, rather than influencing the city in which it was located. And we'll talk about that. So we'll be learning things about each individual city in which the church was located so that we can then see how much the church was influenced by its city. And this will give rise for us to examine our own local churches as well and to uh, determine, if we are able to, how much our churches have become like the communities in which they are established. And it's very sad oftentimes to see, such as in the example of the church at Pergamos, how a city can influence and affect its churches rather than the local church affecting and influencing the city, which is the way it should be. Well, the question naturally would come to one's mind, why out of the hundreds of churches located in cities all over the world by the end of the first century, or at least, you know, this part of the world, why were these seven particular churches selected by the Lord Jesus? Well, one reason is because the situations occurring in these seven specific churches represented churches and their situations that the Lord omnisciently knew would occur throughout the church age. And they also represent seven basic divisions or seven stages of church history, which the Lord, being Alpha and Omega, knew the church would go through, seven stages. And furthermore, they represent individual Christians throughout the church age. So let's move on. We've talked about the real churches of the first century. We're moving on now to the representative churches of church of the church age. They're, these seven churches serve as seven types of representative churches which can be found in any century throughout the church age. And the church age started on the day of Pentecost and it will end on the day of the rapture. Now, we have already pointed out the symbolism of the number seven in Scripture. The number seven refers to completeness, right? 
or perfection. And so we have said that these seven churches were selected so as to symbolically speak of the entire church of Christ. So what the Lord says in these seven churches is really to his church, you know, universal. What the Lord had to say was obviously not just written for that first century Asia Minor local church. It was written for their benefit, but not just for their benefit. It was written for the benefit of all churches throughout the church age. Also, the specific strengths and weaknesses of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 are representative of strengths and weaknesses found in churches in all centuries. For example, there are Ephesus-type churches today. Churches which have sound doctrine, but where the majority of the members have lost their first love for the Lord. And there are um, Smyrna-type churches today, many of them in other countries, churches where the people are persecuted for their faith. So So they represent churches and their strengths and weaknesses throughout the church age. Now, it's obvious that the seven churches chosen by the Lord were a purposed, selective list because we do know from history that there were up to 1,000 different townships in the province of, I don't have the map up there, but in the province of Asia Minor at the end of the first century when John wrote this letter, or when he wrote the book of Revelation, which was about 96 AD. We know that there were about 1,000 different townships, and some of them were much larger than Philadelphia or Thyatira, so these churches we know were not selected just because of the size of the city. These weren't the seven biggest cities. And we also know they weren't the seven biggest local churches. They didn't have the, you know, seven biggest congregations in that part of Asia Minor. The Lord chose them because they represented the seven basic types of churches and individual Christians, which we'll discuss under Part D, which he omnisciently knew would exist throughout the church age. And one additional reason we know that, they, that these letters were not intended simply for the benefit of the local real church, just as, you know, Paul's... Remember how many churches Paul wrote to? How many? He wrote to seven churches as well. John wrote to seven, and Paul wrote to seven. We know that John, uh, Paul's letters to seven churches were not just for their benefit, were they? I mean, don't we still study the book of Romans and the book of First and Second Corinthians and Thessalonians? And Yes, of course, we know that they were for the benefit of all Christians throughout the church age. Same is true with John's seven letters, or the Lord's seven letters that John penned. But one further reason is because we know that each letter a- ends with a commandment And here you do want to maybe look at your Bibles. Um, Each one ends with a commandment that says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me see if I can find a place where it says that. I didn't write down a verse. Anybody find one? Shout it out. 11? Okay. Um, Yes. Okay, look in 211. 2.11. It says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church is. Now that letter was written to a singular church. It was written to the church of Ephesus. But obviously here we're given a plural. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. So even though the individual letter is addressed to a single Asia Minor local church, this obviously was intended for all the churches. And this is very significant because it suggests to us that also there is more than one 
church like the church of Ephesus. It's a type of church that the Lord knew would exist throughout all the ages, or throughout the church age, throughout the centuries, all the centuries. And that there are many churches like the church of Ephesus even today. We could find Ephesian churches. We could find Ephesian Christians, just as we could find Thyatira-type churches and Thyatiran-type Christians. Now, these seven churches represent the seven types or the seven kinds of churches then that would exist during any century of the church age. And this is also significant as far as considering claims, which are made by certain churches, that they are the only church and that there is no salvation apart from belonging to that particular church. And there are churches that say this. Be careful of a claim like that. Be careful of any church which tells you you cannot be saved unless you are a member of their church. Because Christ himself demonstrated right here that there is more than one type of church. His true church, the body of Christ, his beloved bride, is made up of true born-again believers who come out of all seven types of churches, even the come out of the apostate church. Believe it or not, even the apostate church has a few saved members in it. Why they don't get out, I have no idea, but they're there. Maybe they feel like they need to be the light in that particular church. Even though some of the churches may have very, very serious problems, and some of them that we look at do have very serious problems, this does not mean that they do not have true members within them who belong to Christ's universal church. And these are what we will find. These are the people called the overcomers within each church. They are the true Christians in each church. So the seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 were apparently selected by the Lord Jesus Christ for what he could say concerning them, which would be of lasting values for all churches throughout the church age. Okay? Um, Now let's talk about the respective churches of church history. This is the third part down under our outline. As we discuss each of the seven letters to the seven churches, I don't know if I can get all of that on there, not only will we be looking at the churches as being real, local, first century churches, and as representative type churches throughout the church age, But we will also view them as portraying respective stages of the church in church history. These seven churches were divinely selected out of the many which we know were in existence in John's day. They were selected because they present for us church history in its seven different stages. I keep saying the same thing, but I I, I repeat myself so you get it. The church has developed down through time through seven stages. Now, this is very significant, and therefore it's something that we will be emphasizing. It was not by accident, nor was it by coincidence. I don't believe in those two words. I don't believe in the word luck. I have eliminated it from my vocabulary. There is no such thing. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything that happens. So it's no coincidence that these seven specific churches, with their seven specific names, that they were chosen for these two chapters. Neither is the order in which they were given without divine purpose. 
It wasn't just because it would make it easy for the postman to deliver them. There is a divine purpose in the order. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They were purposely chosen by divine sovereignty sovereignty, so as to prophetically foretell of the development of the church. In other words, each letter to each specific first century church describes the dominant characteristics of a particular period of church history and a particular chronological period of church history. Now, from where we stand in church history, which I believe is at the tail end, I believe that we are in the stage of the Laodicean church, the apostate church, we have the distinct advantage of looking back over these things. And this makes it easier for us to see how the various periods of church development correspond to what is presented by Christ in each one of these seven letters. But, of course, from where John stood, and he was at the beginning, he was in the apostolic church period, the very beginning, the first one, he didn't know what the Lord was doing. Even halfway through or three-fourths of the way through, people probably didn't suspect what the Lord was doing. But they should have had a clue. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because he did say he was the beginning and the ending, right? He knows the ending from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And the whole book of Revelation is prophetic. So they should have suspected he was doing something like that. And he was. And I believe he was. And I'll tell you why. I have six reasons. Why do we interpret the seven churches in this manner? as respective churches to exemplify the seven stages of church history? Well, for six good reasons. Now, I will tell you that not everybody believes this. Some just say, no, no, no. It's just coincidence. Well, I don't believe that. I really do believe that these were given to us by God, by Christ, to prophetically foretell of the, of the church history, of church history. First reason that I'm going to talk about this morning is because of the chronology of the book of Revelation itself. Second reason is because of the corresponding parallels with actual history. Third reason is because of the clues which were definitely given to us by the names of these seven churches. That's all we'll cover today. Then next time we'll talk about um, how the seven church letters are consistent with other scriptures which have to do with church development. Then we'll also talk about the fact that there is a very, very interesting comparison of the seven church letters with the seven parables given to us in Matthew 13, which also give us the course of the church in what we call the mystery kingdom parables. There's a very interesting comparison. And we'll look at that. And then, lastly, because of the clustered divisions that we're going to find in this list of seven. The first four form a clustered division, and then the last three form another clustered division. And all that's very confusing to you right now. But those are the six reasons why I believe that God gave us these seven churches purposely to prophesy of church history. Let's look at the first one, and it'll become clear as we talk about them. The first one is the chronology of the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is given, in general, in chronological order. And this order, remember, is presented to us initially initially in the divinely given outline for the book. And that outline is in what verse? You should know by now. 119, right. In 119, John was told to write what he had seen. Okay, that came first. 
And that was the vision of Christ that we studied in chapter 1. Then, and see this is chronological, then he was to write about the things which are, and that is the contents of chapters 2 and 3. Because the existing thing, both in John's day and still in our day, is the church. And that's what we look at in chapters 2 and 3. And then the next thing to come along chronologically is that he was told to write about the things which would occur after these things, after the church. The contents of this last and largest section of the book, the things which shall be after the church, that's the largest section, also moves in progressive chronology. Revelation is a book of a series of panoramic progressive pictures. Even though, as we mentioned in one of our introductory lessons, we do stop, you know, we have parenthetical interruptions now and then in order to, you know, cover some details about something that we've already discussed or that John had already discussed or maybe to introduce something new that's going on at the same time. We have those parenthetical interruptions, but other than that, the book flows in chronological order, as you can see up here. You know, first seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls, and the whole chronology of chapters 19 to 22, with the Lord coming first, then establishing his kingdom, and then, you know, the the millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state. All of that is given to us in chronological order as well. So since the book itself is chronological, it would seem very reasonable to assume that the contents of chapters 2 and 3 would also be given in some kind of chronological sequence. And we believe, or at least I believe, and a lot of other Bible teachers, a lot of Bible commentators and expositors and pastors also believe that it was given in the sequence of church development, which has been in seven stages. Now, why shouldn't we? consider the seven church letters as being prophetic. Why shouldn't we? I mean, after all, didn't he promise us in that blessing of Revelation 1-3 that blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this what? Prophecy. Wasn't the Lord telling us right from the very beginning that this is a book of prophecy? You know, so why would he eliminate chapters 2 and 3? Why would everything else be prophetic except those two chapters? He who is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, surely would have no problem for telling of the historical development of his beloved church by purposely selecting the seven specific churches that he selected from first century Asia Minor. So that's the first reason that I believe this and that we will be studying this particular view or perspective on the seven churches. The second reason is because of the correspondence with history that we find with these seven churches. Um, A study of actual history will soon reveal that the Church of Christ has indeed gone through seven basic periods or seven basic stages in its development. And these seven stages correspond precisely to the sequential list of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So let's consider briefly how this works, okay? The first letter to the church of Ephesus provides for us a very good picture of the spiritually powerful apostolic church which existed from the day of Pentecost until approximately 100 A.D., or whenever John died, because you see this is the apostolic period of the church. So it ended when the last living apostle died. We don't know exactly when John died, but it was probably around 100 A.D., the end of the first century. 
Now, the letter to the church of Smyrna, which is the next church, covers the martyrdom period of the church, which overlapped the apostolic church because didn't all the apostles except for John get martyred? And John, of course, was definitely persecuted for his faith. The Smyrna period of church history began approximately about 64 A.D. Actually, we could even push it up further because the head of the church was martyred in 33 A.D., so you could go all the way back up to 33. Um, And it began under the reign of Emperor Nero, and it lasted until 313 A.D. when Constantine made Christianity the state religion, the state religion of the Roman Empire. Now, the next church, Pergamum or Pergamos, pictures for us the corruption of the Christian testimony which occurred during the third era of church history when church and state united in an unwholesome relationship under the reign of Emperor Constantine. This period of history lasted from 313 when Constantine took over the empire, Roman Empire, until about, and these are approximate, 313 is firm, but some of the other dates are approximate, till about 590 A.D. And then the Church of Thyatira symbolizes the Church of the Dark Ages, which was from 590 to 1517 A.D., a time when true Christianity, this is the reason the world was plunged into the Dark Ages, because the light of the church became very, very dim. And uh, Christianity was almost lost to the world. Of course, we know it never would be, but it was almost lost. But there were those true Christians, small groups of them here and there. But this Thyatira is the church of the Dark Ages. The fifth stage of church history began when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg in October of 1517. And this began the rise and development of Protestantism, which is a protest movement. That's where the word protest, it's protest. Protestantism and, of course, the Reformation. That's a period that began in 1517. Now, this was a very powerful movement in the beginning. But, unfortunately, it did not maintain its strong spiritual emphasis. Following, and we'll talk about that, following the Reformation stage of church history which lasted or which ended in 1750 the missionary stage of the church took off and this period of development in the church is represented by the sixth church the church of philadelphia the you know good missionary church but even this church had problems all the churches were sown over with tares you know wherever there's wheat there's going to be tares so there's good and bad in every single one of the churches even in the good church the um, church of philadelphia And the Church of Smyrna was a good church, the persecuted church. So this is the time period which we call the missionary church. It was from 1750 to 1900. Now what we're saying here, let me just stop for a minute. What we're saying is that the Philadelphia type of church was the dominant type of church during the dates that I just gave you, 1750 to 1900. just as the Thyatira type of church was the dominant kind of church which existed from 590 to 1517 A.D. But that doesn't mean that there weren't all the other six types of churches in existence when these were the dominant types. Okay, do you get what I mean? You get my drift? (laughs) Okay. In each and every stage, all seven types of churches could be found. 
But when most churches in existence in the world at the time were on fire for the Lord and they really, you know, got the got, got a clear idea about the Lord's great commission and they wanted to get out there and witness to the world, when most of the churches were, were like that, the church stage was the Philadelphia type, the missionary type of church. However, the dominant type of churches in each successive stage match the chronological listing of the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3. So you see what we have here? They do match the list that Christ gave to us. The order fits perfectly with what actually happened in history. Well, the final message was to the church of what? Yes, the church at Laodicea. And this, of course, symbolizes the apostate church of the latter days. This stage of church history began in Germany with the rationalists attacking the fundamental traditional view of the Holy Scriptures. And uh, so they attacked the traditional view of the Holy Scripture. And what did this begin? It began the rise of negative criticism. And consequently, from that movement, there has been a tremendous sweeping apostasy as the Scripture in its inspiration and in its authority, has been denied and rejected. And you don't have to go too far to find that happening in the churches. Unfortunately, this is the type of church that dominates our world today. So there is a remarkable analogy between the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven stages of church historical development. And as we go through these seven church letters, we're going to learn how Satan has gradually cut away the essential features that make a church a genuine light-bearing church. As we're also going to see how he has been successful in many cases in causing churches to go apostate. Apostasy, you know, comes from a compound Greek word. Apo means away from. And stana, which means to stand, You put the two together, and it means a standing away from. And what is it a standing away from? It's a standing away from the truth of the gospel message. It is a defection from truth and even a revolt against it. It's an abandonment of what one had formerly and voluntarily professed to believe. That's apostasy, and this is a very serious matter to the Lord Jesus. It is something which actually began in the early apostolic church. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, if we could only get back to the apostolic church. Well, let me tell you something. When were these seven letters written? They were written to churches in the apostolic stage of church history, and they were loaded with just as many problems as we have today. So it wasn't so it wouldn't be so great to go back to the apostolic church. It wouldn't be. They had the same kinds of pro- problems. But apostasy actually began all the way back there with the loss of first love toward Christ. And it will consummate, you'll notice as we go through these churches, except for the two exceptions of Smyrna and Philadelphia, there is a progression of getting worse and worse. Doesn't the scripture say evil men shall wax worse and worse? That's exactly what happens even in the church. We'll find that the world consummates um, after the member, or apostasy will consummate in the world after the members of the true church is gone. And this decline 
in faith, as I just said, can be traced through these seven church stages, with the climax coming in the great apostate church that we will read about and study about in Revelation chapter 17. Down through the centuries, many people have professed Christianity who never really possessed Christ within their heart. And this was true, as I said, even in the apostolic era of church history. When John tells us, remember, we looked at this last week in First John, John 2.19, he even tells us back in that apostolic era that some went out from us, but they were not of us. So there was problems then. There were apostate Christians even then. And when I say Christians, that's with quotes around it when I say apostate as a definitive. Now, by studying the gradual decay of the church through these seven letters, we will learn how generation after generation progressively did increase in evil and apostasy until we are left with the alarming and tragic situation which confronts the church today. The very first letter written to the church at Ephesus has Christ telling people that they were neglecting their love for him. Their doctrine was sound, everything about the church was sound, but they were neglecting their love for him. That sin of losing their first love was never properly corrected. Why did he write these letters? To correct. He wanted his church to be without blemish, pure and spotless. But they didn't correct it. They didn't take his advice. They didn't have ears willing to hear. They didn't keep the words of this prophecy like they were told to do. And gradually, therefore... This problem deepened and it increased and other sins were added until eventually we find Christ standing on the outside of the church knocking and asking for entrance into his own church. That's that's the situation we find at the church at Laodicea. But let me remind you, although these studies may seem to be an attack on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to remember that the true church constitutes the body of Christ, and the true church is made up of genuine believers who are within each one of these seven types of church. And as I said, these are the people referred to as the overcomers. You'll see that in each letter where he says, to he that overcomes. He is speaking there to the true born-again believers, and they constitute his real church, and they are the ones to whom he gave that promise that not even the gates of hell itself shall prevail against them. You know, if we don't understand this, we'll be very confused when we see him standing outside the church, and we'll be very confused when he says to the church at Ephesus, I'm going to, if you don't get this right, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick, and that's what he did. He actually did that from history. We know he removed the candlestick. That whole area is dominated by Muslims today and the religion of Islam. He removed the candlesticks from all seven of these churches, actually. And we say, oh, how can that go hand in hand with the fact that he said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church? The fact is that his true church are the believers within each church. They are the overcomers. And against them, not even the gates of hell shall prevail. So let's keep that in mind or we'll get very confused. All right, the third thing, and this is the last thing we'll look at this morning, and why another supporting view which sees the seven churches as respective types of the seven stages of church history comes from a study of the names of the cities of those seven churches. This is the clues that we give get from the names. 
Each name means something, and its meaning corresponds perfectly with the period of church history which that church represents. Therefore, these names, I believe Christ was definitely giving to us as clues as to what he was doing. He was prophetically giving the history of the church in addition, you know, to all of his other reasons for writing these letters. He was giving us a prophetic viewing of his church. And what does this do for us when we look back on it? Well, I'll tell you what it did for me in 1982. It put my heart on fire because I really saw who Jesus Christ is, that he is Lord, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And, you know, I surrendered my all to him. And I've told you before, and you get tired of hearing it, but I studied Greek. And when I looked up these Greek words and found out what they really, really mean, not just trusting what somebody said, but getting out my Greek dictionary and looking it up and seeing that this was really the case, what these names meant, I got so excited. I was jumping up and down. So let's look at what the names mean. The word Ephesus means desirable. You know why? Because... The early church, the apostolic church, its doctrine was so pure that this was desirable to the Lord Jesus. They had the purest of doctrine. And this is what he desires in all of our churches. We'll talk more about the names when we get into the study of each letter. But I'm just going to go through these quickly right now for you. Smyrna, the next one, comes from the word, the Greek word, myrrh. Myrrh or bitter. The interesting thing you know about myrrh, and myrrh is the word from we, uh, that we have derived our English word martyr, right? Myrrh. Martyr comes from the word myrrh. Smyrna is a derivative of the word myrrh. The interesting th- thing about that herb, myrrh, is that it has to be crushed before it gives forth its beautiful fragn- fragrance. And the more it is crushed, then the more fragrant it becomes. Smyrna was the crushed church, right? It was the persecuted church. And this fact made it a very fragrant church to the Lord Jesus. The more that Christians during this time of church history, the more that they were crushed and persecuted and martyred, the more the world caught the fragrance of their faith and their love for the Lord Jesus. Consequently, although many were dying for their faith, yet the church grew. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, right? The church was growing, and the church was doing what it was supposed to be doing. It was influencing the world. Martyrdom, of course, was a bitter price to pay, but it was worth it because it was a fragrant love offering to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the word pergamos, It comes from two Greek words. You put them together, and it means thoroughly married. Thoroughly married. And this third church represented the third stage of church history when the church and the state were essentially joined together in matrimony. It was a time of doctrinal compromise, which resulted in a decrease in spirituality and an increase in worldliness. The true church, I hope you know, should never, ever be unequally yoked to the world. But this was the case in the church of Pergamos and in that stage of history, too. Then Thyatira, the fourth church, literally means, when you put again two words together, continual sacrifice. 
and it represents the fourth stage of church history, which began with the rise of papal authority and the Roman church. You know, both the Catholic Mass and the teaching of transubstantiation, where they believe that the blood and the wine actually become the, the, uh, the, not the blood, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is called transubstantiation. That's what they teach. The mass, the teaching of transubstantiation, and the crucifix, the cross with Christ still on it. All of these continually sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ, putting him to an open shame. Hebrews 6.6. The Thyatira type of church dominated the world during the period from 590 to 1570 A.D. And this was the period of church history which we called what before? The Dark Ages, yes. Then the next church listed is the church of Sardis. And Sardis in the Greek language means those escaping Now, this is not just coincidence. I hope you're getting your heart starting to beat if you've never heard this before. There is no way this can be coincidence. Those escaping, do you not see that this symbolizes very perfectly those who escaped from the dominance of Catholicism and began the great church reformation, which came out of Germany, and the great Protestant movement, those escaping. And then the next church letter was written to the congregation at Philadelphia. You all know what that compound word means, I think. Phila comes from the word phileo, which means what? Love, yes, love. And adelphos is the Greek word for brother. This is the church of brotherly love. Philadelphia then represents the era of church history when brotherly love dominated. It was this love for one's brother which caused Christians to take the Great Commission very seriously. Subsequently, the world was launched into the great missionary stage of the church. You know, this was the time of the great tent revivals that they had with the sawdust trails and, you know, hundreds of people getting saved each night. I would love to have seen that. I would have loved to have been living during a time like that when the Holy Spirit was really moving and people were getting saved by the hundreds and there were great awakenings and excuse me in Europe and in England which is now so dead and in the United States which is now so dead I wish before the Lord comes we could have a revival in the United States because I love this country and I love the people And I wish people would just get saved by the hundreds. I would just love to see that. And in the Philadelphia stage, I wish we were still in that stage. Christians really began to understand the evangelic commandment of the Lord Jesus. And they really began to reach out with the gospel message to their brothers and sisters, unsaved people around the the world, the four corners of the world. Well, thank goodness there are Philadelphia-type churches still in existence today, right? Well, the last church, the church at Laodicea, stands for the apostate church. And this began in about the 1900s with the beginning of negative criticism. You know, let's criticize the Bible and let's believe Darwin and, and just make fun of anyone who takes the Bible literally. 
And this took us right on into the apostate church stage. Well, you know that the Greek word Laodicea, again, comes from two Greek words. Laos, in Greek, is the word people. Dicea is the Greek verb for speak. If that isn't humanism. The people speak, or the people rule. Another word for Dicea is rule. This is what? The humanistic church, where the people are speaking, where the people are ruling the church instead of who? Christ and the Holy Spirit. It symbolizes the lukewarm church era, which really dominates our day today. It represents that era of church history when the church looks at itself, as we said at the beginning of this message, the church looks at itself, you know, so proud and puffed up, and they say, well, we're rich. Look at our buildings. We're so rich, and we're so self-sufficient. But really, in Christ's assessment, they are poor naked, blind, in desperate spiritual need and guidance. The Laodiceans, in fact, have left Christ out completely because where do we find him? We find him standing on the outside, knocking for entrance. It's to these lukewarm church members that the Lord Jesus says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's pretty serious. And you know that's exactly what he does at the rapture? They are spewed out of the mouth of the Lord because they will remain here on earth and go into the tribulation days. The apostate church will be the church of the tribulation. They're spewed out of his mouth. He doesn't take them home to be with him as he does the overcomers, the true Christians. Well, there are three more reasons that we'll look at next time after our Thanksgiving break. Three more reasons for why we will be teaching that these seven churches give to us a panoramic picture of church history. I think maybe, I hope these first three have convinced you alone, but there are three more reasons. We'll continue our look at the reasons for for um, why we believe this next time, and then we're also going to cover how these seven churches represent individual Christian believers throughout the church age, and then we'll look at parts two and three of our outlines. We're, our outline, we're still in part one. And we'll continue by looking at the problems of the seven churches and then the purpose of the seven churches. Today, we're only halfway through with part one, the perspectives of the seven churches. But I hope you're excited about our study of Revelation 2 and 3. It's going to be very, very significant to where we are and to our lives today. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for what you have shown us just today in your word and how perfect and almighty you are, how you truly, truly are, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, and how you have proved this to us so many times in your word by prophecy, as you have done in these seven churches, and the names, that's not coincidence. Father, we love you. Oh, we just worship you, and we do pray, Lord, for revival. We pray that you would be patient with us, that you would hold off your coming, even though we want to say at the same time, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We do pray that somehow Christians in this nation and around the world could get a fervency for you, return to that first love, and 
and just fall on our faces and pray for revival, for a sweeping of the Holy Spirit across this world, that many would be saved so that you wouldn't have to spew them out of your mouth when you come. We pray for those we love that don't know you because, Father, we don't want them to be left behind. We pray for those that are our friends and our neighbors and, yes, even for those in our churches who don't know you because wherever there's wheat, we know Satan has sown over with tares. Father, we pray for revival, but we know whenever we pray for revival, we have to say, begin with me. And I say, Father, begin with me. Through these churches, again, ignite my heart on fire for you. Help me, Lord, to be more bold about getting out there and witnessing to people. Lord, we just love you. We thank you that your true church, your universal church, is one body. And we have such a perfect picture of that here in this ministry. Those of us that have come from all different kinds of churches, we're the overcomers, I pray, hope that we are, that everyone here is saved. And we come together as one true body in Christ to study your word, to love you better. And I thank you for the privilege of teaching in a ministry like this. Lord, we just pray that you'll be with us during the Thanksgiving holidays, that, Lord, we will truly give you the thanks that you deserve and that we will tell people about our wonderful Lord and Savior and invite them to this study so they can learn with us what you have to say to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.